primary. It's not my fault. It's not my fault he went to PC. So he can play uh, video games. Some whack priorities there. Dear listeners, Marie is mm. trying to make me feel bad because I purchased. <laughs> trying and succeeding. I purchased a PC to play video games on. And it's going great. It's going great, Marie. Uh, so why? I'm not even getting into it. Yeah, solid. No, actually, I'm 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 not trying to make you feel bad, but I I am also kind of jealous too. I understand. It's pretty exciting. Uh, can I also just mention super fast <laughs> that like my teenage daughter knew that you were on Twitch before I even had any idea what Twitch was. I, I thought it was just a of course, of course voluntary reaction. It was no. an involuntary physical physical reaction, and she's like, "No, mom, it's the platform where you can watch people play games." Seriously, Marie, <sighs> come on! How did you not know that? You need you should have known that. <laughs> All right, dear listeners. I'm like, Chris is on that. <laughs> yeah, we're playing video games on Twitch now. It's great. Um, God, you're so embarrassing, mom. Oh. All right. Sorry. It's so good. So last episode, what did we talk about? We last episode, first off, your listeners, this series on time travel, we told you, you all wanted it. We told you the series on time travel is going to go until the end of time because we basically <laughs> need to go through the entire. You guys wanted it. Oh, no, you didn't. It's not like, like this. You didn't. It's like going through the entire history of modern physics, because like this question or the the reasons that we think time travel is even like kind of theoretically possible is because of all of the weirdness inherent in our physics. So it's like basically taking a fit. We shouldn't even call this the history of the time travel. We should call this the history of physics. And then like time travel is like the bonus episode on the history of physics. It's just icing. It's just icing on the cake that is physics. Anyways. So last episode, we discussed two really important concepts, right? So the first one was Mm -hmm. that we, from all the stuff that we had studied in physics, we believe that there were, there were universal laws. Mm -hmm. And we talked about Mm -hmm. how part of the reason we thought that might be true was because the laws of physics seem to hold true regardless of the inertial frames of reference you were a part of. Yes, that was us dropping a ball on a moving train. Exactly. The mm-hmm. other thing we talked about was our development of our modern view of electromagnetism, which was, you know, this idea that magnet, uh, magnetism and electricity were two of the same, basically two sides of the same coin. They were the same phenomena. And not only that, but that understanding of electricity and magnetism being the same thing, that started to look like maybe light was also the same thing as well, because it, it appeared from the work of Maxwell and others that the speed with which electromagnetic waves traveled through a, a wire without resistance was the same speed that light traveled through a medium, through 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 the ether that they called at the time. The ether. Right. Yes. So there wasn't any better explanation for it, which I still can't get over. Right. So we ended up with a bit of a pickle, and that pickle is where we begin this episode. Jake, roll the tape. So we ended up in a pickle. A pickle, a hell of a if pickle, if you will. And that, first off, we 
we're at this point now where electromagnetism and light seem to be the same thing. You know, on top of that, too, light and gravity, or rather, at the same time, gravity and electromagnetism had the same mathematical forms. So what I mean by that is the the pull between two objects due to gravity, that's the same exact equation as the pull between two magnetic or charged particles. Science is so weird. Yeah. The only difference is the is a constant. The only difference is like yeah. either the, the Coulomb's constant or the constant um, due to, um, you know, the gravity constant, Newton's law of gravity constant. So essentially we found that, well, maybe all this stuff is interrelated. Like maybe there's one central equation or one central law that links all of it together. That's that, so weird. That's almost creepy. Like how close is that to proving like some, again, like some massive divinity or something? Do you know what I exactly. mean? Exactly. Like, yeah. No. That's the thing that weirds me out about math and science is how it just gets really close to that kind of stuff. Well, and then that's just weird. It's just creepy weird. What's interesting is the closer we get to that idea uh-huh. in a weird way, the farther away we get from it being clear that our math is really showing us anything true. Like if you remember in the beginning, we talked about how math is just a tool, you know? Yes. But these, yes. these scientists at the time, they didn't think math was just a tool. They, they, a lot of them really thought they were getting to like, yeah, God's underpants. You know, like they were getting to like the, the the hidden stuff that you shouldn't see. You know, they were they were looking in the mechanism of the universe. Right. But as a layperson in math and science, you can kind of like that's sort of like. It could look like that. Like Absolutely. I don't necessarily believe that, but it's like that's some weird. You get some weird stuff. It's pretty fascinating. And it's it, yeah. it, it gets you to the point where you think. It makes you consider the fact that what a what an insane coincidence if all of this just happened to get linked that way right like what a what a crazy coincidence that is kind of nuts it's a pickle it's a pickle it's a pickle so we talked about electromagnetism but we still haven't really talked about light and that's going to be the central problem really for for this episode So, all right, we talked initially about how we get to this point where we we start seeing this other constant value, which is the speed of light. Right. And it's like three times 10 Mm -hmm. to the eighth meters per second. At the time. So, first off, early efforts to measure kind of the speed of light were happening from really, really early. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Galileo did experiments on the speed of light. He essentially the way that he did them really was like kind of the way that you might do them. Or I know I I know I actually did this when I was a kid. I was like my parents bedroom. They had a um, I guess my dad's bedroom, I should say. Right. We're out the pine (laughs) barrens now. My dad's bedroom had Uh a um, he had like a a chest of drawers. Like, I guess what would you even call that? It's like I, I haven't. A bureau? Not a bureau. It's like a it's like bigger than that. It's like a huge ass. Like it's huge. The thing is like the size of a wall. Um, and it was drawers. It was like drawers and like you could open it and there was like uh, almost like a shelf in it. 
or not a shelf, but like a thing to hang stuff on and everything. Like it was weird. It was a wardrobe. A wardrobe. A freestanding wardrobe. wardrobe. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, wardrobe. Yeah, but that's a weird okay. thing. Like, who the hell has a wardrobe yeah. nowadays? Anyways, whatever. Yeah. My parents had a wardrobe. My dad, my dad had it in his room. And the wardrobe, the doors had mirrors on there. And I would play for like weird amounts of time in the wardrobe mirrors, just like you'd open them and then close them. And so you could like make a million Chris's and then like no Chris's. Right. Um, and you could like flash lights or lasers at there and they would bounce. And like I had a, I had a lot of like stupid, weird fun on my own because I didn't have friends. I had friends. But anyway, so. so OK, so that, that was a lot to unpack. Sorry. That was a detour, but I wasn't expecting. We'll come back to that. OK, good. So long. We'll come back to that so, in a later. Episode. So long as we come back to it. Um, <laughs> so. So, Chris, tell me, tell me about the relationship with your mother. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Our hour's almost up. No! No! I need more! <laughs> there was a thousand infinite crystals and then there were none! Um, sorry. All right, we're getting weird. That was awesome. So, I know, that was so right. good, though. But, okay. Continue. But, so Galileo's early, Galileo. Galileo's early experiments mm-hmm. to try to measure light were essentially, like, he have his buddy, like, really far away from him, have a lantern, and then his Galileo buddy. would have a lantern. And then they would, they would measure, like, the buddy would, like, cover the lantern at a certain time and mark down the time. Uh-huh. And then Galileo would tell him when he saw it. Okay. Right? Okay, like, so, yeah, they're trying to, yeah, okay, they're trying to clock it. Yeah. Okay. Now, the problem with that, as you can imagine, is the speed of light is so huge mm-hmm. that, it, like, you'd have to be, like, stupidly far away for it to make a difference. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. You, you know, basically all Galileo was able to say is like, oh, it's fast. <laughs> you know, like he couldn't he couldn't differentiate between it being like beat it. instantaneous or not. Yeah. Like he couldn't beat light, you know, which is which is kind of a funny thing to think about him and his buddy Dimitri or whoever it was. Whoever the hell it was. So <laughs> uh, but but those early attempts led to better experiments. So actually, one of the first ones that's really considered to be a good one is by Olaus Romer who was a Danish astronomer and mathematician and his estimate of the speed of light was published in 1676. So still like, I think earlier than most people realize how close we were getting. Basically what Romer did was he looked at the, he looked, he was an astronomer. So he was looking at the moons of Jupiter and specifically he was looking at IO. And what he noticed was if you think about like, what does Jupiter and its moons look like on like a telescope? It's like you have the planet there and then as the moon is rotating around the planet, it mm-hmm. it looks like it goes to the Locks left. It, it looks like it goes to the left of the planet and then it stops mm-hmm. and then it goes to the right of the planet and it stops. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what what Romer found essentially was the time of the period of the moon. Right. So how long it took to kind of go around that cycle would actually be different Um based on whether or not the Earth was traveling closer to Jupiter or farther away in orbit. Oh, okay. And so based on... That makes sense. He's got some distance he's working with. Exactly. His distance was long enough, right? So in the the case of, like, if we took that analogously to, like, Galileo's experiment, Mm -hmm. Romer was... His buddy was the moon Io, (laughs) and the lantern (laughs) turning off was it passing behind the planet. Yes. And so he estimated that, um, but this measurement is kind of an indirect measurement of the speed of light, right? Because 
he's measuring it based on how long like there's a lot of distances involved. You have to think about the distance mm-hmm. of the Earth to Io and then Io to Ju- or the Earth to Jupiter, Io to Jupiter. Like there's a lot of math involved there. And so his estimate essentially was saying like about 22 minutes um, for light from Io to get to the Earth is what he estimated based on all of his math. Hmm. That was relatively close, but still kind I was of say how was that right? Still still off. It was pretty close, but still <laughs> off. Newton would then mm-hmm. elaborate on that measurement in his optics, which was published in 1704. Newton would say that taking into account the measurements, all those distances and stuff, and the best guesses at the time for what those were, Newton would say that based on that, he estimated that it took the, the sun, light from the sun to reach the Earth about eight minutes, which that's shockingly close. That's hmm. we today. We know it takes eight minutes and 19 seconds. Newton. So in 1704, we had like a really good guess for the speed of light. Now, besides just the speed of light, like that's interesting and important. But really, the most important thing about light or, or another aspect, I guess I should say, of light and its nature was. The fact that we we wondered So first off, let's talk a little bit about light before we get into more about the nature of light. Like, why did we think light was so interesting and important? Like, Marie, what what do you think Mm. about? I don't want to just ask, like, what do you think about light? But like, but but what do you think about light? Like, what what is it about light? What, What can you say about light that makes it different than other types of physical things? Well, how do you measure lights? Right. What is the metric that you would use to understand how it travels or how what how it's measured in general mm, right do you like, wanna, can you elaborate on that more like what do you mean by measure <laughs> like what do you mean by measure well, well like so okay so how does it um what is the sort of it's it's physical form that you're measuring are you measuring when you okay. see it are, are you measuring like how does it travel like sort of you know Got sort it. Of what are its physical properties? Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, so that's, that's sort of how I would try and like wrap my head around it. Like, oh, it's bright, you know. But yes, but like, are, it, it, yes, that's really important. Yes. That's actually really important, right? So you you said a couple things there that actually I don't think you realize how good all the stuff you just said was, like how scientific what? it was. Um, it's like so, like Newton. No, <laughs> like Newton. So, for example. Like yeah. If you tried to measure like mm-hmm. if you tried to measure the physical properties of light, light doesn't really have a weight. Right. So it have a volume doesn't right? really have a volume. Can't, you can't capture can't light. Grab it. Can't grab onto it. Exactly. You can't really yeah. pour or, or kind of get light. You can generate yeah. light from like chemical reactions. You can do like a fire or something. Right. But. Yeah. There's also other sources of light that don't like the moon gives off light. But where's that light yes. coming from? Like, you know, there's so there's all these mm-hmm. other it's kind of an interesting thing. And then over time, as we start kind of playing with light and, and messing with it, we start knowing we start noticing other things. So, for example, if you shoot light, um, just normal white light through a prism, a specific prism, mm-hmm. you can break it up into colors. Right. That's pretty strange. Weird. You can um, if you shoot light through different sized holes, you can actually get 
what's called a diffraction pattern, which mm-hmm. essentially is you have a light beam coming in, but then on the other side of the hole, you end up with rings of brightness and darkness. Which is weird. Which is weird. Which is weird. Yes. And you have other, and there's a lot of other cases, right? You can do things like camera obscuras, right? Where Mm -hmm. light seems to kind of bounce off a surface. And then if it goes through slits in a certain way, it'll actually make an image of the surface that it bounced off of. Like there's all kinds of weird things that happen with light. So we, besides it traveling at like a certain speed, which on its own was weird. And that's one of the reasons that we were so interested in that measurement was because it seemed to be one of the few physical measurements of light we could even attempt in early physics. No mass of light that that's very, very challenging. You know, there's Mm -hmm. really hard to think how you do that, but it's sort of like time, right? It's like, it's sort of the same. It's very similar. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's no, there's no concrete metric on how you could even understand something like that at the, in some ways. At the same time, so we had physicists then like Isaac Newton or even Rene Descartes uh, actually wrote about this too, besides saying, you know, mm. I think therefore I am. Um, part of this discussion was of the physical nature of light. Is light a particle? Is it like made up of little bits of light that kind of come together mm-hmm. Or is it one continuous thing? So that theory of it being particles or pieces of of light that kind of come together, that was known as corpuscular theory and was was, um, really popular with Newton, for example. Descartes also put that forward. Um, But they they were really the best known early proponents of the particle view. However, that particle view couldn't explain things like diffraction, which diffraction we now know today is only possible if light is a wave. So Mm -hmm. the idea of light Mm -hmm. as a wave was introduced to explain diffraction and other things like refraction and other kinds of optical weirdness. But essentially it was it was put out there by Christian uh, Huygens in 1690. I hope I'm saying that right. It's H-U-Y-G-E-N-S. It might be Huygens. But I think it's Huygens. Anyways, um, his theory or his experiments in, in mathematics was essentially showing light was a wave. And so it traveled as a wave does. Um, and at the time, the most common type of wave we could think of was like an ocean wave. Water. Yeah. Water. Uh-huh. And just like water. Um, and we had, we talked about this a little bit last time, but really this is where this idea comes from. They thought that that wave You know, we know that light travels through space, for example. Mm -hmm. And we also know that light, if it goes into different mediums. So in other words, if you have light traveling in air and then it enters water. It changes direction and actually it seems to change speed as well. Yes. So the theory was, well, first off, if something is a wave, it has to have something that it's being waved by. Um, yeah, like yes. like from is a better word than than by, but there has to be something. Something's causing something's causing the frequency of the wave. Exactly, there has to be something for the wave to be of, and mm-hmm. the and the argument that Christian put or Huygens put forward was, it has to be this thing he called the luminiferous ether. Again, with that, like, is that just a cop out at this point? Like everyone is like, ah. Well, at the, at the time, the at the time, ether. right? We. 
all we, the, you know, at the time we had no, the, he just put it forward as an idea. As like this, there has I'm to be you. something that propagates light through, through space. I don't know what mm-hmm. it is, but I'm just going to call it the luminiferous ether. Something so starting it. It is yeah. kind of a it is kind of a cop Some out. Action or something. It is yeah. kind of a cop out, well, but I mean, yeah, it's yeah. a pretty good one though. I mean, if you're going to cop out, you might as well cop out on the big stuff, right? Right. Like, that's a pretty good. Right. Why not? Um, <laughs> and so that was kind of where things stood. So we had a pretty good idea of like the speed of light. We had an okay idea, and we had this idea of the ether, and that's kind of where things sat until like the 1850s, and that's what we're going to get into after the break. On a hot summer night in 1988, Jane Borowski was stabbed 27 times by an unknown man. She was seven months pregnant. My name is Jane Borowski. I survived, and I remember everything. Jane is the lone survivor of a serial killer. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell, and this is Dark Valley. Join us in our search for America's unknown serial killer. Subscribe to Dark Valley, out now. All right. So it's like the 1850s now. We've we're getting better at science. Things are going OK. But but I got to say, like, if nothing else is taken away from this, like 1600s, they were pretty close. That was pretty good. You you that do not. Than, it's honestly it is. That's what it, it's partly okay, tangent. It's amazing. Tangent. Yeah. It's part tangent. of what makes ancient alien stuff so frustrating. <laughs> Is if you if you asked any one of the people in ancient just, aliens, just a part, yeah. Uh-huh, if you asked uh-huh. any of the people in ancient aliens when they thought we had the first, like within within a couple of percentage mm-hmm. estimates of the speed of light, when do they think that was? They probably say like Einstein, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's, you know, mm-hmm. just because they just don't they just don't know, you know, they just haven't taken the time to like to like learn. It's pretty frustrating. Well, Anyways. I mean, I, no, I, I, I wonder what the speed of a tangent is, though. That's pretty, you know, that'd be harder to measure. It looks like it's about two minutes. Um, okay. So it, it wasn't, though, until, like I said, the 1850s that really the, the estimates of the speed of light and our understanding of light really took kind of a, a, a monumental shift. So um, two physicists at the time, Fitzhugh and Foucault, were were basically they were rivals and they were both trying to get to the speed of light, the best estimate for it that they could. Hmm. Essentially what they tried to do that was different than previous experiments. All the previous experiments we talked about so far were measuring light by way of like distance, right? Like how long did it take light to travel from the sun to the earth or from IO to the earth? Mm-hmm. They thought, well, what if we could figure out a way to measure the speed of light itself. All right. Now there's kind of two explanations for this, one of which is more complicated than the other. But let's do the let's do the simple version first. All right. Dig it. So mm-hmm. let's imagine that you have a gun that shoots tennis balls. Sweet. Right, so you have a tennis ball, I don't know, a, a serving gun. What would they, would they call it a gun? You got gun me. Feels no, violent. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm in there. I'm, right. I'm 100% there. You had sh- me a gun that shoots tennis balls. I was like, science. Right. So you have a yeah. gun that shoots tennis balls. Okay. And it okay. shoots tennis balls 
at a certain at a certain regular interval. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, start, it shoots mm-hmm. tennis balls at the same speed. Mm-hmm. And so it shoots tennis balls and then it hits a wall. And mm-hmm. then the tennis ball will bounce back. Yeah, okay. back of the gun. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's going fast enough that it shoots the tennis ball, hits the wall, and then shoots right back. Imagine the tennis ball. There's no like droppage from gravity or whatever. It's going fast enough that it hits the wall and it makes it back to the gun without really dropping at all. All right. Okay. Now, imagine you wanted to measure the speed of the balls that were going. Mm-hmm. All right. One way you could do that is besides and, and, and there was no way to just like view the balls right so this is happening like all all you can do is you can see when dark it's in the dark all you can tell is whether or not the ball got back past the gun so all you know is did the ball make it back from the gun okay okay it's hitting something besides me it's taking out people beside me yeah so one thing you could do is of course you could measure. Well, when did the when did the ball get shot, and when did it return? You could do that, right? Mm-hmm. But what if it's going mm-hmm. really fast, like way faster than you can possibly measure it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing you could do is you could try to interrupt the shot of the ball. So imagine, for example, you had a shutter that would pop up and then close. Um, whenever you told it to. So you had a you had a program, you had a computer that you could program to say, I want this shutter to go up every 10 seconds and then come down every 10 seconds. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Yes, okay. yes. Now, if when you're doing that, so you have that shutter going, mm-hmm. if you ever, if when you have that shutter going at 10 second intervals, the mm-hmm. none this of your, that's your constant. Okay. Right? If you have it going at 10 second intervals and no balls get through the shutter, you know your shutter speed is too slow. Right. All right. Yes. So you shorten it. It's got to be sped up. Yep. You shorten it. Maybe make it five seconds. Mm -hmm. Okay. Suddenly, sometimes some tennis balls get through that shutter system. That means that at least the ball is traveling the distance from the gun back through the shutter in five seconds. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you're capturing it. Exactly. Okay. Now, if you kept doing that experiment and got shorter and shorter times, mm-hmm. you could get With to a shutter. really yep. good estimate of the speed of the ball. Right. And so that way you could get an estimate for the speed of the balls. I'm with you. Okay. These, so Fitzhugh, his experiment, and same with same with Foucault, really, but Fitzhugh is the first one we're really going to kind of explain, and the one we're going to go into detail with. Mm-hmm. Basically did that experiment, but instead of a tennis ball, he had a light source. And so, and again, at this point, they knew that light was a wave. So what he had was a certain what he had basically was like a two way mirror that would only let through some some types of light. Okay. Okay. So the the light goes through the two way mirror and then it goes to another a good mirror on the other side. It Mm -hmm. bounces off that mirror and then it comes back. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Now, what he added to that instead of having a shutter, what he actually had was a wheel that basically had holes cut out in it at regular intervals. 
Mm-hmm. Right, so let's say you have like a, you have a wheel and like every inch of the wheel um, arc, you have a hole cut. And so by spinning the wheel at certain rates, he could get that shutter speed we were talking about. So is this the same type of thing? I'm just going to throw it out. Is that's like opti, optic, you know, the op, the optic trick to make something look like it's running? Yes, it is the exact, exact trick. What? It is basically the exact trick. Or, or if you've one of those at Disneyland, by the way, or if you've ever seen, or if you've ever seen those videos where like a helicopter. If you've ever seen those videos where a helicopter looks like it's it's not spinning, it's just it's not spinning. Constant. It's yeah, the so same yeah. exact idea. Okay. Okay. Um, because that's another way actually of getting an estimate for how fast those rotors are spinning on the helicopter. Right, because you're actually being able to capture it and see it at exactly. The same speed. So it has to be going at the same basic rate. You're perceiving as motion. The yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Exactly. So look at me, and I equate it to Disneyland. I'm like, Killing they've got a really cool Killing one of those at Disneyland, but they do, they do, and it's like it's one of those. It's I can't remember what it's called, but it does an entire. It's called like a, it's called like a, a camera. Oh. It's not a camera obscura, but it's like another thing like that. It's, it's like a camera, something like that, and it was amazing because yeah. again, it's it's your eye is tricking you into believing something that's not really happening. So, which is really what Disneyland is all about. Oh, absolutely, and sugar and sugar, but keep going. Oh, absolutely, sugar. <laughs> And sugar. Sugar. So what was. First off, this experiment, this is ingenious. It's so smart. And it's it's like almost it's almost stunning in its simplicity. Mm-hmm. But it is so smart. That's amazing. I mean, that's like really basic. It's like what they use to sort of make early films. It's something that today we take for granted. But it's something that yeah. at the time was was revolutionary. Now, and you know who probably takes it for granted? Ancient aliens. Guys. Ancient aliens. Yeah. Yeah, they do. So know Foucault, uh, Foucault, his rival, basically did a similar type of experiment. But instead of using the spinning of the wheel, Foucault had a mirror that rotated. And so basically you could get the when the light bounced back, you knew how long it took based on how far mm-hmm. the mirror had rotated. Got it. So another kind of really interesting experiment, but essentially like a a pretty close estimate. Those methods got us within one percent, less than a percent. It's like point eight or something or point four of the actual speed of light. Oh, my God. That was in 1850. So crazy. Mickelson would later basically do the Foucault experiment, but he increased. Now, the the accuracy of these experiments it depends on the distance between the shutter and it depends on the distance basically you use so Mm -hmm. the bigger the distance the more um the better your measurement will get because if you have a really short distance you have to spin that shutter like the difference between shutter speeds gets harder to differentiate Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. the farther apart you are you can get a lot better measurements so Mm -hmm. uh, mickelson basically did that foucault experiment but did it with a much greater distance and much better mirrors um evidently so by the way it's a zoetrope zoetrope that's the word yep there we go so uh so again so we actually had a really good idea of what the speed of light was in 1850 like around 1850. So by the time Einstein came around in like 1905, 1917, we we already had the speed of light figured out. So 
What Einstein's actual work was really important about was the luminiferous ether. Now, all of the experiments we talked about already still had the ether concept in there. Mm-hmm. They still assume that that must exist there. Mm-hmm. But as we got closer and closer to a good speed of light measurement, and remember, too, at this point now, so we've measured the speed of light, and then we have Maxwell come and basically reinforce that that speed is correct by showing it appear in another whole other set of experiments. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. we've now been able uh-huh. to figure out like, oh, my God, we can measure the speed of light. Well, if you can measure the speed of light accurately. Then you should be able to start measuring or learning about the ether itself. Ow. Which previously you couldn't. Oh, so. Crazy. So why, why did we, why, first off, what did we want to know about the ether? Well, again, the ether had a lot of the similar properties to light. It had, mm-hmm. there was no apparent mass to it. There was no, you know, there appeared to really be no, uh, it, it had no physical form. Like it wasn't even clear. Right. It was just the thing that's starting and making everything. Yeah, like go. it was even less clear what the ether mm-hmm. was than what light was. Like light, we at least right. had some ideas. Yeah. But one of the things that we figured the ether must do is be affected by other matter. So imagine like, let's take the example of a, let's take the example of water waves again. Mm -hmm. If you drop a stone into a river or a lake, Mm -hmm. what happens to the water? It has ripples. It has ripples. Yeah. But what causes the ripples? So the, the rock goes down Right. It it kind of sucks water down with it. Right. And then eventually and the moving. If it's a, if it's a river, it's also moving. So right? let's not take let's take a still lake. Oh, okay. lake still lake's easier. As the rock falls, mm-hmm. it sucks in water around it, mm-hmm. and then eventually the water will kind of close up again as it, all of it shoots up into the air. Right, because the the rock will make a make kind of a splash. Right. Right. Why does the rock take the water with it? Uh, vacuum? No. So it's actually caused by the friction on the surface of the rock between the rock and the water. Uh, okay, okay. So the rock basically has drag. Oh, so if you, okay. if you, instead of a rock, if you threw like a knife, like, I don't know why you throw a knife into the, into the water. But a like, bullet. what if we shot, what if we shot a bullet? A bullet's different. Water. No, a bullet, a bullet, uh, a bullet will have that same drag. But like, yeah. if you okay. took something like a knife, like, I actually, I've, uh-huh. I did this as a kid because I was fascinated by this. But like, if you took like, um, with the bullets or the knives? Not a knife, but like, if you took like your hand in water uh-huh. and you kind of uh-huh. chop it in, you actually have much less drag, so you make much less ripples. Right. Right. And it, this, then if it, a flat surface will make exactly. More so right. it's the drag. It's actually the friction between the two bodies. Okay. Well, if the luminiferous ether exists, then maybe it has drag with the Earth. Oh. Because the Earth is moving. We know the Earth is moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. If the ether is out there, if it is the thing with which light propagates, then it would seem to make sense that the ether probably gets dragged by the Earth's surface. Hmm. 
It should, right? Yeah. If, it, if it's yes, anything yeah, physical, it should. Yes, it should. <laughs> it shouldn't. <laughs> it should. I right. should like I don't know. Now, interestingly, <gasps> mm-hmm. if it it could it could travel like that. It could be kind of so. Essentially, what that assumes is that there is a sort of. What that assumes essentially is that there's like a static ether out there. So in areas mm-hmm. where there's no motion, there's just like a still calm ether, right? Like a lake without anything moving there. Right. But in some areas, right. in some areas, though, there is ether that is being forced to move by by objects kind of going through it or whatever. Right. OK, that's one idea. Another idea would be. Maybe the ether itself is what's sort of it's moving with the earth. So maybe there's like an ether wind, right? For for lack of a better term, maybe the ether moves constantly with the earth. But then there's still something moving that, right? Then oh, yeah. it's not the, then it's not the thing that's moving the, the light, because then there's something moving the ether. Yeah, maybe. It's getting much, isn't it? We got we got trouble, Marie. <laughs> this is a pickle, dude. <laughs> yeah, pickle. So, <laughs> what? What they Science. thought essentially mm-hmm. was, well, so there are two basic ideas now of the ether, right? There was the ether. Mm-hmm. It is the ether is uh, being dragged by the earth yep. or um, or the ether is just stationary. In either case, though, the ether is always in relative motion to the earth because we're always in motion. Yes. Right? Yes. So what people thought was, okay, well, what if now we could actually measure the speed of the ether? That's weird. And that essentially is where we're going to pick up next time. Because it's it's too challenging to explain the Mickelson-Morley experiment in the time that we have left. You don't you didn't even solve any of the pickles. No, only, that's the, okay. The interest made more. The interesting thing that's happening here is as we dig deeper and deeper, uh, we're coming across worse and worse pickles because it turns out that our idea that like our math must be true or that our like our physics is kind of interesting because it's sort of the constant finding that everything we thought we knew about the world was wrong. I mean, yes. that's what science is. But, yeah, and what's but, replacing it is going to be proven wrong shortly thereafter. Right, but fi- like physics is really like, I think I think it's it's fairly easy to think or see how biology has kind of been like a constant positive move forward. You know, like yeah, it's, so it's 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 a constant it's it's constant change, right? Yeah, over time, like we yeah. like it's really easy to see how biology started with like. What the hell is this? And you like hit a rock, hit a frog on the head with a rock to like today. We're like, you know, we can we can like heal things. And, you know, like biology has kind of moved. Yes. Interestingly, that way. Physics. Oh, yeah. Biologists are going to really love that. Well, like but like physics, we're kind of still answering the same questions that like Galileo was trying to answer. Yes. Well, like, it's, it's basically the same. You know, physics is kind of cool because it's like we got to the problem really early and we've just we've just been finding new ways to mess it up for ourselves this entire time. But 
They're, but that's that's unfair, though. There are definitely clearly big strides we've made. You know, it's, it's actually interesting, too, Marie. We're, we're probably not going to get to get into this too much. But mm-hmm. you because the biologists can get us. Guess. But like you mentioned, you mentioned how the ether theory was just like they threw something out there and it was right. So actually, so so was like a lot of science at this time. Like we threw out the idea, like we just put out the idea that there were molecules. There was no evidence for molecules when we first thought of them. Same with electrons. Electrons were just put out there as a as a theory by like Lorentz, I think. Um, we just, he just said like, well, there's there must be these things called electrons, which are like the particle version of electricity. And he was right. He was proven completely That's correct. Pretty good imagination. Absolutely. Pretty right. Good creativity. It, yeah. Well, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. So it's, you know, yeah. so it's kind of it's kind of interesting, I think, how sometimes these ideas that just like the ether looks like a really famous failure. And it is a famous failure, of course. But it, it's like, you know, it's not a failure because of the way it was done. It's a failure just because it's wrong. You know, but the method, mm-hmm. the thought process behind it has led to really, really strong other theories. They just haven't solved that. Right. Anyways, dear listeners, thank you so much. We will continue. We'll our solve se- it on the next episode. We will continue our series <laughs> on the history of basically all of physics. Uh, next episode. The next episode, we'll finally get into Einstein. We will finally get into special relativity. Special relativity is basically what is what what is brought about to explain the failure of the Mickelson Morley experiment. Not only that, but partially the failure of the Mickelson Morley experiment, along with um, Lorentz ether theory, which is what we're going to get to next episode. And from special relativity, we get to general relativity, and then we can finally time travel, baby. It's all gravy from there. Finally, we can talk about time travel. We're hopping in the DeLorean at that point, my friends. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm -hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. 
That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 